I was thinking about the stone the builders rejected because that's the title and I discovered that the lectern which had been here before has disappeared and this lectern which has obviously been rejected by some other builders has become the head of the corner so I am um, uh, there's a kind of a visual onomatopoeia going on or something like that now in the previous lectures I have sketched two major problems facing modern theology and the study of Jesus and the Gospels. First, the Epicurean takeover has problematized any intersection of our world and God's world. It's a big divide. And second, the modern split of past and present has made history and eschatology both confusing and urgent. And these two Western intellectual challenges, cosmology, how you put the world together, eschatology, how you put past, present, and future together, have produced multiple distortions. And we've assumed that the ancients were addressing our issues only in a muddled and distorted way, not realizing that they were addressing different questions in different terms. And our failure is then regularly excused on the grounds that, well, the gospel was new wine, so we don't have to bother studying the old wineskins. No, the fact, that the, old, the fact that the early Christian message was radically new doesn't absolve us from understanding the setting in which that radical newness meant what it meant. We have no license to ignore history and assume we know by some other means what they must really have been talking about. So I want to argue now for a fresh retrieval of key elements in the Second Temple Jewish worldview, within which the strikingly new things that the early Christians were saying about cosmology and eschatology had their intended resonance. Now let me head off one obvious objection right away. Surely someone will say, and I could name some of these someones, you don't expect us to adopt a first century worldview we live in a new day. We have electric light and modern medicine. We are post-Copernicus, post-Darwin, the poster children of the post-modern world. To this we must reply, no. We live within a revived form of ancient Epicureanism. The only modern thing about that is that it's so widespread. The worldview itself is no more modern than that of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Forget the modernist rhetoric, the chronological snobbery which assumes that all who went before us were epistemological thieves and robbers. Nothing that Copernicus spotted through his telescope, nothing that Darwin found crawling or squawking in the Galapagos has anything to say here. We must not caricature ancient Jews and Christians as though they were naive cavemen believing in a three-decker universe with supernatural upstairs, natural downstairs, and something nasty down in the cellar. That shallow cosmological sketch is like the early maps that tried and failed to capture the globe on a sheet of paper. And in the same way, just because we've invented mechanical clocks, we mustn't assume that we understand time and they didn't. The modernist protests are trying to distract our gaze from the pink nakedness of the Enlightenment's emperor strutting down the street. The way forward once more is through history. That is, the task of paying attention to ancient evidence in its context, aiming at a larger description of what words meant and what actions intended. Here we live in exciting times. I know it's an ancient Chinese curse, may you live in exciting times, but we do. New studies have highlighted what we may call temple theology, generating fresh ideas about Jewish cosmology and eschatology. And these are the coordinates for all sorts of other things, not least anthropology, by, wh by which I mean what it means to speak of humans within this cosmos and within this idea of time. Epicurean anthropology sees humans as autonomous accidents, ultimately disposable. Jewish anthropology sees humans as image bearers, God reflectors. 
The evidence from the Second Temple Jewish world, including the world of the early Christians, appears to assume an integrated theology, cosmology of heaven and earth, within which new creation could be envisaged not as abolition and replacement, but as redemptive transformation. They lived, that is, within a world of story and symbol and praxis in which it made sense to think of A, commerce between heaven and earth, B, the possibility of new creation arriving, however dangerously and disturbingly, within the present world, and this potentially integrated cosmology and overlapping eschatology converged on C, the idea of humans, and perhaps one in particular, as the image of God. Now you see why the worst thing one rabbi could say about another was Epicurean. It just doesn't work for them. This triple framework, the world, time, humans, contextualizes tonight's central proposal that the New Testament view of Jesus himself, though shocking and unexpected in its own world, meant what it did precisely in that world. Jesus himself encapsulated this balance of the unexpected new thing which makes new and disturbing sense within the old, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And this serves both as metaphor for our overall task and as metonymy for its central focus. And this, in turn, will compel us to reframe the question of God and creation, which flows one way into Christology and in another way into natural theology. The idea of temple cosmology, familiar to students of the Hebrew Bible and Judaica, is a recent arrival in New Testament scholarship. As with other new fads, we risk overstatement in one direction and willful ignorance in the other. You can't imagine how many footnotes belong to that last sentence. I hope that disciplined historical imagination will enable us to understand how Jesus' contemporaries understood the relationship between heaven and earth and between the present and the future and the role of humans within that so that we may grasp what the shockingly new gospel meant within its own world. So temple and Sabbath and image, elements of a cosmic narrative, filling the earth, filling the temple. Some scriptural highlights. Psalm 72 prays that Israel's king will fulfill God's purpose by doing worldwide justice and mercy, particularly for the helpless and vulnerable. And the psalm ends, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. This theme is echoed in Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2, which speak of the knowledge of Yahweh or the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh filling the whole earth. In Isaiah, as in the psalm, this is the result of the Messiah's wise and just rule. In a similar way, the promise and warning in Numbers 14 that all the earth shall be filled with Yahweh's glory is responding to the people's rebellious panic over the report of the spies. Yahweh is fed up. He's promised to go with them. His glory appears at the tent of meeting, but they need to know that this glory is simply one stage en route to a larger glory filling worldwide. We're reminded of Solomon's statement, the highest heaven can't contain God, so how much less this little house. That link between the divine glory first filling the tabernacle and then filling the whole earth is echoed in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. Verse 1 has the hem of Yahweh's robe filling the temple. Verse 3, the seraphs sing that his glory fills the whole earth. Verse 4, the house is filled with smoke. The filling of the house points to the filling of the whole earth. We might actually have figured this out already from the way in which Psalm 72 and Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2 have the promise of cosmic glory filling, which reflects the notion of glory that fills the wilderness tabernacle in Exodus 40, or Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, or indeed Ezekiel's new temple at the end of the book of Ezekiel. In other words, Israel's God 
promises to do in and for all creation what he has done in tabernacle and temple. Again, we note this makes no sense within split-level Epicurean cosmology. Nor would it appeal to the Stoic, for whom divinity permeates everything anyway, but doesn't seem to make all the difference we might want. It certainly wouldn't be welcome to the Platonist, for whom Earth is a mere shadow of true reality and of the, and of the hoped-for ultimate goal. But these ancient Israelite references to glorious divine filling are actually just the tip of the iceberg. They point to the remarkable new wave within biblical studies, which is now exploring the connection between cosmos and cult, between creation and shrine, between particularly Genesis 1 and 2 on the one hand and the tabernacle and temple on the other. Now here we must be careful. We don't know, I don't know, and actually I don't think anyone knows, in what sequence the relevant texts were written or edited. So we can't easily say, well, this one came first, so obviously that one's influenced by it. And it would be easy to miss the all-important sense of a narrative, because Genesis 1 and 2 are, are given to us as the start of a project. Eschatology, or at least a telos, a goal, is in view from the start. This is going somewhere. What matters as far as I'm concerned, and I think we should be concerned, is how reflective Second Temple Jews might have thought about the relevant texts, and then how the radically new proposals of the early Christians resonated within that world. The central proposal, explored by many writers today, is that the Pentateuch offers what Harvard's John Levinson calls a homology between the creation story in Genesis 1 and the construction of the tabernacle in the closing chapters of Ezekiel. For Levinson, this goes both ways. The sanctuary is depicted in Exodus as a miniature world, a microcosmos while the creation itself, at least in priestly circles, was seen as a macro temple. Genesis 1 describes the building of God's palace, heaven and earth together, for God to live in, with humans in the middle of it. Now, some people have cautioned that we should see it only as one-way traffic, that tabernacle and temple may be small working models of creation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that creation was already seen as a temple. That argument can go this way and that. But here we meet the question of Urzeit and Endzeit, the first time and the last time. Are the shrines, Tabernacle and Solomon's Temple, are they trying to go back to the original creation or are they going on to a supposed cosmic goal? I'd go for the latter myself. But from a second temple perspective, we should stress two things. First, all these sources would be read within the well-known forward-moving implicit canonical narrative, with new elements being added to an existing picture. You'd never have guessed Abraham or Moses from Genesis 1 and 2. New elements are added, but without needing to suppose that everything was codedly present in Genesis 1 and 2 already. But second, those who knew the texts would easily make inferences in both directions whether or not the original text was designed like that. You know how it is. Once you recognize a family likeness in a child, you may find that the grandparent can remind you of the child as well as the child of the grandparent. You might even see things in the grandparent's face that you hadn't noticed before. The detailed echoes between Genesis 1 and 2, particularly Genesis 1 here, and Exodus, creation and tabernacle, have been laid out in many different ways, with obvious points like the menorah in the tabernacle reflecting both the tree of life in Genesis 2 and the seven heavenly bodies in Genesis 1. Second temple writers like Philo and Josephus, like the Book of Jubilees and the Enoch literature, these are very, very different, but they all see the tabernacle and or the temple and or its furniture and priestly robes as representing the cosmos. And this theme continues on into the late, later rabbis, where, as Jack Neusner, one of the great rabbinic experts of the last generation, wrote, it is assumed that the tabernacle stands for the cosmos. It's a microcosmos. It's a small working model of creation. 
Close readings of relevant texts, not least within the ancient Near East, make the same point. The seven days of creation have been linked to the seven stages of the tabernacle's construction and also the seven years of building Solomon's temple. Seven is, of course, a hugely important number throughout the Bible. The first sentence of Genesis has seven words. The second sentence of Genesis has 14 words and so on. And that, it's more complicated than that, but that's at least a start. And the tabernacle instructions conclude by reaffirming the Sabbath commandment which reflects, of course, the close of the priestly creation account. Many have seen the parallel then between the holy of holies at the center of the tabernacle and the Sabbath as the focus of time, the day which, like the holy of holies, the creator has made holy and blessed. Sabbath is to time what the holy of holies is to place. All this makes a lot of sense within wider ancient culture, where temples were regularly understood as meeting points between heaven and earth. Temples were often seen as symbolic mountains, perhaps reflecting ancient beliefs, as with Olympus in Greece, or indeed Sinai, there they are, that the mountaintop, swathed in cloud, would be a good place for a god to dwell. Thus, Mount Zion, the location of Yahweh's temple, is sometimes spoken of as a high mountain, despite the fact that it's only a small hill overshadowed by an immediate neighbor. And if you didn't have a mountain, you could substitute pyramids or ziggurats. Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, Jacob's Ladder, they all fit here in different ways. No time to explore that just now. And the question of how far ancient Israelite symbolism reflected wider ancient culture and how far it protested against it again is not hugely important here. What matters is that the wider context makes it natural to see those textual parallels between, as one recent volume puts it, cult and cosmos. The wider parallels emerge in the prophets and the Psalms as they echo various versions of a well-known ancient Near Eastern narrative. It goes like this. The creator overcomes the forces of watery chaos, perhaps the great sea monster, the dragon Tiamat, there it is. The cosmos then emerges like Mount Ararat as the floodwaters recede. The shrine is then constructed, either like Noah's Ark, on top of the waters or maybe replacing them altogether. This narrative enters historical writing in the stories of the tabernacle and then the temple. In Exodus, God defeats the waters of the Red Sea. The Exodus event is seen by one recent scholar as, quote, a microcosmic enactment of the original act of creation. The waters are driven back by a wind. Remember the beginning of Genesis. Yahweh then overcomes the enemies, both Pharaoh and the sea god, as in Isaiah 52. And in the narrative, this leads directly to the building of the tabernacle. And in the Song of Moses and Miriam, which I think you have on your sheet, it points further again to Solomon's temple on Mount Zion. The story is complete. And in each case, interestingly, the context is rest. The divine presence finds its rest by filling the tent, comes to dwell there. Just as God created this heaven and earth world to be his own palace and came in to take his ease. God then gives David rest from his enemies, which is when he decides to build God a house, 2 Samuel 7. And then, in 1 Kings, Solomon is given rest from his enemies. So he then goes ahead with the project, constructing the house with, interestingly, the brazen sea as part of the furniture, representing the chaos waters now overcome. The house, this is, into which the divine glory comes to rest, as in Psalm 132, here is Zion, this is the place I've desired to rest. And actually Psalm 2 tells more or less the same story. God laughs at the raging nations and he installs his son, his king, on the holy hill of Zion, summoning the nations to allegiance. Basically the same narrative. Now, all this temple building constitutes the enthronement of Yahweh. He, Exodus 15, 18, he will reign forever and ever. Temple and divine kingship 
are two parts of the same reality. And this depends on the link of microcosmos and macrocosmos, because without that, the god of a particular temple could just be a local, de a local tribal deity. And the narratives and poems which state all this, prophets, psalms, etc., were constructed piecemeal over many centuries, but they come together in the functional canon of the Second Temple period, so that cosmos and temple are mutually interpretative. Now, this doesn't mean, to repeat, that the end site, the goal, will exactly match the Oort site, the picture of the original um, creation. No, the story which the scriptures appear to tell variously and as a whole is not about the end being identical to the beginning. What is to come will be modeled on and fashioned out of the good creation, but it won't stay the same. And furthermore, the disaster of Genesis 3 demands that for the project to reach its goal, the human agents need rescuing. So Israel's history from Abraham onwards comes under this rubric. The covenant will restore creation, just as the call of Abraham promises to undo the problem of Adam and thus to restate in a new mode the vocation of Adam. Do you get it? Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply and get on with the job. Abraham was told, I will make you fruitful and multiply you exceedingly and give you the land. There's a, again, homology. Within this larger covenant narrative, the destruction of the first temple is seen by Jeremiah as creation reverting to chaos. If Solomon's temple had been a forward-looking new creation promise, here's a, a microscopic version of what God is going to do for the whole cosmos, then when the Babylonians knocked it all down, hope was gone. But Ezekiel then envisions the divine glory which had abandoned the old temple to its fate, returning to fill a newly built house. It's the same story. The chaos monsters have been overcome. In other words, Babylon was overthrown. So that the temple is constructed, the people's sins are purged, and the glory can return. Instead of the waters of chaos, living waters flow from the sanctuary to make even the Dead Sea fresh. Now, all this offers, therefore, a kind of inaugurated eschatology. Not the same as the early Christian variety, but not so different either. The tabernacle and the temple, situated within and reflecting the present creation, are already effective indications of the divine intention to renew heaven and earth and fill them with glorious presence. Solomon is aware, as we said, that his temple is only a small working model of a much vaster reality. But God graciously deigns to dwell there and to use it as a base of operations. The new global center towards which prayer will be directed and from which divine power and rescue will go out. Now, the difference between this worldview, special places where worlds overlap, and our modern Western prevailing Epicureanism are obvious. No wonder we have found it difficult to understand early Christian language about heaven and earth and their mutual relation, the question of which natural theology is a subset. Now, the dangerous fusion of heaven and earth, dangerous, that's why you have Leviticus, uh, to, to try to manage this extraordinary business, is matched with the overlapping eschatology of the present age and the age to come. And this points to our second theme. Just as ancient Israelites believed that heaven and earth were not far apart, but overlapped and interlocked, so some of them seem to have believed that the age to come might be anticipated during the present age. The temple was the place on earth where you would find yourself in heaven, the Sabbath was the moment in ordinary time when God's new age would arrive in advance. Sabbath was thus to time what temple was to space. It was, as one writer puts it, a tabernacle in time. Just as Jewish views of the temple cannot fit within the split cosmos of Epicureanism, Jewish views of the Sabbath cannot be fitted into the Enlightenment's sharp break between past, present, and future. Tabernacle and temple 
belong together as forward-looking symbols, and the Sabbath belongs right there with them. The new age towards which they gesture is the new creation, the completion of the project of Genesis 1 and 2, accomplished through the redemption of the disaster of Genesis 3. And on both counts, biblical eschatology resists the idea that if the kingdom of God were to arrive, it would mean obliterating the present world or at least shoving it to one side. And Likewise, modern discussions of temple cult and Sabbath keeping have been hamstrung by the much later religious prejudices, which, framed by unhelpful modern philosophies, could only see ritualism or legalism. I've got a bunch of books on the Sabbath at home. Most of them are saying some, something like, is the Jewish Sabbath the same as the Christian Sunday? And if so, how should we keep it? And so on. They hardly notice, they do just notice, but they hardly notice the actual significance of the Sabbath in Judaism. The link of temple and Sabbath is the more striking in that whereas the ancient Near East offers parallels for temple ideology, the Sabbath institution appears, I think, distinctive. Brought together in Israel's life, they framed the idea of the divine kingdom. The temple was the place where God was enthroned. The Sabbath was the time when God's enthronement would be recognized or seen. The temple was where Yahweh would find, if you like, his sabbatical, his rest. Not a time for doing nothing, but the moment of inaugurated reign. And the Sabbath is blessed and holy, just like the inner sanctum. This explains why, interestingly, the Mishnah, okay, later post-Christian text, gives instructions to read Psalm 93 on Fridays, that's celebrating Yahweh's victory over the waters, and then Psalm 92, which celebrates God's enthronement, on Saturday, the Sabbath itself. First the victory, then the enthronement. That's how the narrative works. And this is further explained in a reported saying by Rabbi Akiba in the second century. Psalm 93, he says, is about how God finished his works and reigned over them as king. Here is the point. Sabbath references in early Christianity are few, though important, but any claim that Israel's God has become king or is becoming king carries the implication that the true Sabbath has arrived and the true temple is being built. Other evidence indicates that for some Jews at least, the weekly Sabbaths were seen as foretastes of, and hence pointers towards, that coming great Sabbath, the eternal rest of the age to come. Just as the temple is the microcosmos pointing forward to the new world, the Sabbath is the microchronos, I suppose, or microkaros. Let's not mix our languages here. Um, pointing forwards to the ultimate new day. You see this in temple, second temple works like 4th Ezra or the life of Adam and Eve. In the latter, interestingly, the archangel Michael tells Seth not to mourn for more than six days because, quote, the seventh day is a sign of the resurrection the rest of the coming age, and on the seventh day the Lord rested from all his works. The world to come will be a kind of perpetual Sabbath. Quote, the delight, and this is from one recent Jewish writer, the delight and joy that will mark the end of days is made available here and now by the Sabbath. Some later rabbis retrospectively interpreted Shammai's strict Sabbath teaching, that's from the generation before Jesus, in terms of his attempting to make the weekly Sabbaths resemble as closely as possible the life of the age to come, so that you mustn't even kill a moth, because on that day all creation will live in harmony. It says so in Isaiah 11. You mustn't carry a weapon, because in the Messianic age swords will be beaten into plowshares. And some early Sabbath rules for Jews echo temple-based purity codes. So as though the laws that would be relevant if you were a priest serving in the temple must apply to the Sabbath as well, because this is a foretaste of the coming age. So Sabbath thus looks back to creation, across, as it were, to temple, and forward to the age to come. Now, okay, much of this evidence comes from the post-destruction period, post-AD 70. So you might say, well, of course they'd go there because the temple had collapsed, so they needed a different symbol. But 
In earlier material, the scrolls insist on rigorous, rigorous Sabbath observance, though they don't obviously interpret it in this way in relation to the coming age. The, the songs of the Sabbath sacrifice may have a hint of that. But it seems unlikely that this Sabbath-focused eschatology was purely a post-70 innovation, because it emerges, as many people have said, naturally from Scripture itself. John Levinson argues that for Jews prior to as well as after the destruction, the Sabbath possesses possessed what he calls cosmogonic significance. Because on the Sabbath, creation is completed, consummated, and mimetically reenacted. So that, again quoting, the annual renewal of the world has become a weekly event, as well as a reenactment of the Exodus. You see how the whole thing fits together? The Sabbath becomes a weekly celebration of the creation of the world, the uncontestable enthronement of its creator, and the portentous commission of humanity to be the obedient stewards of creation. Quote again from John Levinson. This vision of the Sabbath can be expanded to include the great festivals, notably, of course, Passover, the Exodus festival, and they look on then to the ultimate rest, the great Sabbath, which is signified by the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. And we also note the larger proposals about long Sabbath-shaped periods of history pointing forwards to the coming eschaton, for instance, in the book of Jubilees. The interim jubilees, the ones you have on the way, will continue until Israel is finally purified from sin and able to dwell in the purified land. We note particularly the great jubilee of Daniel 9, not just seven times seven as in the sabbatical year, but 70 weeks of years, 70 times seven. You remember how it goes, Daniel asks the angel, um, Surely Jeremiah said the exile was going to last 70 years. Isn't that up? Isn't it time to go home? And the angel says, got good news and bad news. Yes, you are going home, but it won't be 70 years. It'll be 70 weeks of years, 490 years. Well, gee, thanks. But in the time of Jesus, they were doing their sums. They were calculating. That's when exile will be over. And I and others have argued that that's the passage which Josephus is referring to in Jewish War Book 6, when he's predicting that at that time a world ruler would arise from their nation, that is, from Judea. One Qumran passage links this text, Daniel 9, with others from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah to form a composite of sabbatical eschatology and messianic prophecy. That's 11Q Melchizedek, if you're interested. And this means that the idea of Sabbath as eschatological marker of God's coming enthronement can be clearly seen in the Second Temple Jewish world, producing a context for Jesus' declaration that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So Temple and Sabbath go together, and together they point forward to the divinely intended goal. They are seen as gifts from God's future, like the fruit which the spies brought back as a literal foretaste of the promised land. And my point here is twofold. First, this explains why the Enlightenment's approach to both place and time, cosmology and eschatology, was bound to misunderstand and then misrepresent what the New Testament was saying. Not because the early Jews and Christians lived in the ancient world and we live in the modern world. No, it's because both ancient Epicureanism and its modern retrieval rules out both the Jewish and the early Christian view, not on chronological grounds, oh, we've gone on since then, but on philosophical grounds. Here's our scheme and that doesn't fit. Second, however, this helps us to understand more fully why the early Christians said what they did about Jesus' resurrection, which is the topic of Wednesday's lecture, and how that can lead to a new vision of natural theology. Now, our more immediate concern now, in the third main part of this lecture, is with the framing of anthropology within this temple cosmology and Sabbath eschatology. Here again, we face the contemporary challenge. Epicureanism, now as before, sees humans as both autonomous and perishable. Eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow you die. Platonism, invoked by many Christians to relieve their Epicurean plight, answers, oh, but I have an immortal soul and it will leave this world and go home to heaven. 
and other contemporary proposals such as cynicism or existentialism belong somewhere in there too. But the early Christians spoke about being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator. And the role of humans in general, and one in particular, is thus radically different from what our culture, including tragically, often our would-be Christian culture, has imagined. So the image-bearing vocation. Humans in Genesis 1, as you know, are made in God's image. Despite centuries of puzzled debate, easily the best interpretation of the image is to see Genesis 1 as a temple and the image of the deity as the final piece of temple equipment placed within the inner sanctum. And this means two things at once. First, the notion of image is functional or vocational. Not that ontology doesn't matter, but that as with the image in a temple, the humans are there to reflect God and God's intentions out into the world. And that vocation is re-emphasized in Psalm 8 and repeatedly evoked via that psalm in the New Testament. The image bearers are God's vicegerents, summoned and equipped to take forward the Creator's purposes. Genesis reveals that God is a working through humans God. He delights in delegated authority. In retrospect, it's easy to see this in proto-Trinitarian terms, although if you just glanced and saw that humans were getting on with stuff, you might draw the Epicurean conclusion. Oh, well, God must be out of the picture. Wrong. But following this second, the ancient Near Eastern parallels suggest that the role of humans in Genesis 1 is the role normally given to the king. Genesis, it seems, is democratizing the ancient Near Eastern tradition. All humans are now royal. You can reverse this as in some interpretations which take Psalm 8, which is about humans in general, and say that that's really about the king. So if humans are creation's royalty then Israel's royalty must bring the human vocation into focus. Back to Psalm 72 again. The king does justice and mercy so that the divine glory can fill the whole world. The king builds the temple so that the divine glory can dwell in it as an advanced sign of that larger purpose. With the image in place and properly functioning, the heaven-earth temple can be filled with glory. And if you can't hear Christology in that statement, then please listen carefully. Then, as we saw, God's taking up residence in the Jerusalem temple, his rest, according to Psalm 132, is matched by the rest that the temple builders, David and Solomon, found from their enemies. So if the Sabbath really is to time what the temple is to space, then the image-bearing humans are called also to share the divine Sabbath. And this, I suggest, was second nature to many ancient Jews as it is to many modern ones. Wonderful book by Abraham Heschel on the Sabbath. The kings, indeed, are not the only humans through whom the cosmic temple finds completion in Exodus. It's obviously also Aaron and his sons ministering before the dangerous divine presence. And hence, as I said, Leviticus, if the wilderness tabernacle is the new microcosmos, the little world where the divine glory has come to dwell, you need some way of coping. Because after all, for the ancient Israelites, we can't say this often enough, as for the early Christians, what matters is not how are we going to leave earth and go to heaven. The point is, how is the divine glory going to come and dwell here with us? The glory of heaven living on earth and filling the earth. This road is currently less traveled, but it makes all the difference. Just think how this worked. Cities in Paul's world competed to host an imperial temple. Ephesus was proud of having received this permission twice. Jerusalem was proud of being the city of the great king. But if this king is the utterly holy God, who can't come into contact with anything related to death or sin or impurity, you're going to need some pretty stringent health and safety regulations. And much of the Levitical cult is just that. The careful, regular purging of the shrine itself from being polluted by the people's uncleanness, and then of the people themselves with the Day of Atonement as the climax, but also the regular Sabbaths and festivals, 
and this is then focused on Aaron and his successors. In the tabernacle, the priests are taking the role that belonged to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And several themes cluster here, no time to go through in, them in any detail. As in many cultures, Israel's king is seen as the ultimate temple builder, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, and right on to Bar Kokhba himself in the 130s, who displays the ruined temple on his coins as a statement of intent. He is going to enact the old myth to defeat the enemy, rebuild the temple so that the divine glory could return. And similarly, the ongoing wisdom tradition. The book of Proverbs links lady wisdom to creation itself. But wisdom and temple both look back to Solomon. Ben Sirah envisages wisdom coming to dwell in the temple in the form of Torah. And this is seen as the arrival of the divine glory. And the Psalms, of course, focus all this again and again on Jerusalem, the rock where God's house is built the mountain from which rivers will flow. Jerusalem is the new Eden, the garden of the Lord. So the living God desires to dwell with his human creatures. Of course, they need rescuing and redeeming and their vocation renewing. But the divine purposes to work through image bearers to bring order and wisdom into the world, to work through the king to build the temple on the one hand and to bring justice and mercy to the world on the other so that the divine glory would dwell there. These things are not put on hold until all is accomplished. As with the weekly Sabbaths, there are advance anticipations of this divine purpose. Temple and cosmos theology belongs within an eschatological narrative and the Sabbaths bring that narrative to life so that the resultant inaugurated eschatology has a vocational and indeed political emphasis, certainly also an ecological and aesthetic emphasis. And genuine science belongs here too. The Solomonic activity of research and classification, delighting in the wonders of creation and developing technology to use it appropriately. And I'll come back to all this next week, God willing. But the theme of image-bearing is not just an eschatological goal to be anticipated in such activities. The human Im image-bearing task seen in this Sabbath and temple framework turns out to include not only organization, but also imagination. Not only labor, but also love. Once you grasp the idea of the image within the temple and of humans sharing God's rest, you find the human vocation of interpretation, the human and humanizing task of hermeneutics, of a rich, multi-layered truth-telling, discovering and displaying meaning by articulating in symbol and story and song the many levels of significance in God's world, past, present and future, and particularly in human life. Discovery and display of meaning is about discerning the larger story within which events and ideas, actions and artifacts, words and worship are what they are. And this is a never-ending task, a gift that keeps on giving, a vocation that keeps on calling. The summons to discern the dawn to glimpse the new creation and on that basis discern the meaning already there in the old, rather than retreating from it or letting it go to rack and ruin. This is one central focus of what it means to be human. It is the call to a form of knowledge for which the better word is love. It is the foundation for a biblical natural theology. <coughs> So if we turn to the New Testament with this complex of ideas in our heads, temple, Sabbath, image, etc., many passages and indeed whole books spring into life. Obvious examples are John's Gospel, the letter to the Hebrews, Ephesians and Colossians. I'm going to start, and this is all we'll get tonight, to look at what at first sight might seem less promising, namely the synoptic tradition. It's here not least that the stone which the builders refused, the builders in question being the broad historical critical tradition, turn out to be the head of the corner. Again, a preliminary note. We cannot simply reconstruct 
a second temple worldview and then just find Jesus comfortably within it. One thing we certainly know about Jesus is that people found him extremely uncomfortable. But again, that's no excuse for ignoring history and recontextualizing Jesus somewhere else, whether in the orthodoxy of the 5th century or the unorthodoxy of the 19th. What Jesus did in the temple and on the Sabbath and how he explained those actions, they were earth-shattering. But the earth they shattered was first-century Jewish earth. And the purpose of the shattering was not to destroy but to fulfill. Take Mark. Mark's narrative landscape is dominated by Jesus' temple action in chapter 11. But the gospel opening already evokes the ancient Near Eastern cultic and creational story. Jesus emerges from the water. He is anointed with God's wind, spirit. The divine voice addresses him with echoes of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. This is new creation and new temple with the Messiah in the middle of it. Mark frames this story with quotations from Malachi and Isaiah, indicating that this is the long-awaited eschatological moment when sin will be forgiven, exile will be over, heaven will be torn open, and the divine glory will return at last. This is the moment of enthronement of the great Sabbath. And when Jesus then declares that time is fulfilled and God's kingdom is at hand, we should think, of course, yes, that's what it means. And Mark goes on almost at once to emphasize not only what Jesus did on the Sabbath, but his claim that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, yes, we think the kingdom has arrived. The old forward pointers are now irrelevant. You don't put up signposts saying this way to Edinburgh in the middle of Prince's Street. The appropriate echo chamber for the startlingly new message both of Jesus and about Jesus is the Jewish assumption of a heaven and earth cosmology, of an eschatology in which the end is anticipated in the present, and of an anthropology in which humans, particularly the king, reflect God into the world in wise, sovereign, self-interpreting action. And this applies as much to the parables as to the passion. Now, faced with this kind of interpretation, which I throw out just as a suggestion, and which I know that some of my New Testament colleagues might find a bit wacky, you might want to invoke Lessing once more and say, well, these are great mythical truths. They don't need any anchorage in contingent historical events. Surely we can have the meaning and don't need to worry about whether it actually happened. That would then threaten the whole argument rather like the snake that waits for you on the penultimate square of a snakes and ladders game. Perhaps, after all, Mark is offering interpretation without event. It's the opposite of that line in Eliot where he says, we had the experience but missed the meaning. Maybe he's giving you the meaning without the experience. No. The point of Mark's whole story, as with John or Paul, is that it's about real things that happen in the real world of creation. It's not an idealist dream. To approach these narratives within alien philosophical frameworks, whether ancient or modern, as though there were any neutrality here, is to fail to pay attention. The New Testament's claims about Jesus and about what Israel's God was accomplishing in and through him mean what they mean, not within some other framework. Certainly not within the modern discovery of Epicureanism as though it were the newly demonstrated modern worldview which has relativized all ancient ones. No, but within the robust and complex and coherent world where Jesus and his first followers lived. And the attempts to avoid this, for instance, by postulating a failed end of the world hope, or by demythologizing that into a mixture of neo-Kantian idealism and Heideggerian existentialism, like putting a dolphin into a field to see if it will eat grass. Mark is telling us from the start that Jesus is the true king. He's the truly human one. He is the one who will defeat all the enemies of the new creation project, and so he will construct on earth as in heaven the holy dwelling place of Israel's God, thereby inaugurating the endless great Sabbath. And all the ologies, Christology, pneumatology, soteriology, eschatology, natural theology, and many more, mean what they mean within this worldview, this view of space, time, and the royal 
human vocation. And Mark's narrative then explains this. Jesus is inaugurating the enthronement day, the new Sabbath, so he naturally sweeps aside the present regulations. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Opposition mounts. Human adversaries embody the dark forces from the abyss. Even Peter is rebuked as Satan. How much more? The Pharisees, Herodians, the shrieking demons, and ultimately the chief priests and Pontius Pilate. And hence, to the Son of Man tradition, the Lord of the Sabbath, now belongs in Daniel 7, which is a dreamlike version of Psalm 2, in which the dark forces gather themselves together against God's anointed and are overthrown in his victory. Mark sees the crucifixion as the royal enthronement, the fulfillment of the cosmic victory already glimpsed in Jesus' baptism, the implicit establishing of the great Sabbath. The veil in the temple is torn in two, like the heavens themselves in the baptism narrative. And the cross for Mark, we might say, takes the place of the ziggurat, of Noah's ark, of the Tower of Babel, of Jacob's ladder, and now also of the temple, whose destruction Jesus had announced in symbol and prophecy. The crucified Jesus is, for Mark, the place where heaven and earth now meet, where the victory is won so that the great Sabbath can be celebrated, where the image bearer truly reflects the creator. He is the stone rejected by the builders, now become the head of the corner. Temple cosmology, Sabbath eschatology, messianic anthropology, formed a comprehensible whole, and when reworked around Jesus and the Spirit, they made the fresh sense which the early Christians grasped. And all this raises the question, how could we tell? How might we judge? Do these ways of thinking, these tellings of the great story, do they make sense? Here the early Christian claim comes into its own. In Jesus, the biblical cosmology and eschatology have appeared in the form of an image bearer announcing God's kingdom, challenging the powers, executed as a would-be king. The overlap of heaven and earth and the interlocking of present and future have appeared in historical, visible human form. Only when we think into the minds of people who could think like that will we be doing genuine historical investigation of the New Testament. And only so will we look lessing in the eye, as we shall do next time, and propose that there is a different kind of truth, a contingent truth, a historical human life within the natural world in which the dawn of new creation may be truly discerned.